Welcome to the Think Theism Podcast. Welcome to another episode of Think Theism, the podcast from Rasha Christie here at Texas A&M. My name is Zach Lawson. You know, there may be no topic in the United States that is hotter than abortion. It really transcends the divide of politics and religion. And really, your perspective on that topic is going to be influenced by how you view the world, how you view humanity, how you answer the big questions of life. Very controversial debate. Fortunately, I'm not going to be talking about it today. So I figured who better to bring in than Jackson Milton. He's a senior meteorology major here at Texas A&M. And he's been actively involved with one of my favorite groups on campus, uh, Pro-Life Aggies. So, Jackson, how are you? I'm good, Zach. How are you doing? I'm, I'm doing great. Um, you're a senior. Been here for a little while. I'm a super senior. What, what all have you been up to on, on campus? Well, I am a meteorology major. I spend a lot of my time up in the O&M building, that really tall one with the uh, radar dish on top. I switched out of engineering, actually, but still had to take all the math classes, so mm-hmm. that was fun. Yeah. I was actually in the Corps for all four years, too, so I spent my time on the quad doing military activities that aren't really necessary for my postgraduate life. And then to start my junior year, I joined Pro-Life Aggies because I decided that all the excuses that kept me from joining them, I wasn't going to let that hold me back anymore. And that's when I really started to get get involved in the pro-life movement. That's great. And this is something that, just talking with you, I can tell this is probably your single biggest passion. The Pro-Life Coalition is pretty broad. There are people like myself that are probably more religious. There's some people that may not be as religious and may, you know, they may have a different perspective on things. Uh, You also have people that are Republicans, Democrats, even pro-life libertarians. Big group, big umbrella. Where where would you say that you personally fit in? Um, Well, I grew up a Catholic. I still am one. And so the church teaching is to be pro-life. It's not just that abortion is bad, but take your own position. It truly is that to respect all human life from fertilization till natural death, and you must take a pro-life position to hold those views. I particularly thought that abortion was a heinous issue, and so I looked more in depth to it and started to see the secular arguments you can make for it, and that's sort of how we can develop policies and hopefully um, convince our fellow countrymen that this issue is super important and that we need to do something about it. So I particularly watched debates on videos on pro-life apologetics, for example, and these had a huge profound impact on me. And yes, so I did develop my views initially as religious ones because I was Catholic. I can defend my views from more of a secular perspective if need be, but still I would say that religion, being Republican, are not necessarily views that you have to have to be pro-life, but they're sufficient in that Mm. regard. If you are a Republican or if you are Catholic, then you ought to be pro-life then. Um, Yeah. For instance, obviously there's biblical teaching about why you should be pro-life. But as far as being a Republican, too, the importance of individualism, for example, should teach that the individual in the womb matters just as much. And if that's your position, that's sufficient. But again, it's not necessary. We can accept secular perspectives. If you're an atheist or pro-life Democrats, all are welcome over or under the large umbrella that is pro-life movement today. And since you've been involved on campus, uh, how exactly has your pro-life activism shaken out? Like what what types of things have you been involved in? So largely my pro-life activism has been um, with pro-life Aggies. We do have meetings every Monday, seven o'clock. 
probably, I think it's in Rudder 404 this year. There was a little problems with the first meeting. Our room was too small, which I guess is a good problem to have. Yeah. Other things we do do is tabling. So we educate our um, fellow Aggies about certain issues surrounding lack of abortion and other life issues that we do have. Um, we also have brought in a Planned Parenthood project, for example, so we can expose the grotesque um, practices of Planned Parenthood. We have a project called Cemetery of the Innocents, where we sort of have a visual display that shows a prevalence of abortion in our society. That's how I initially got involved, and I'm still doing that here as a student at A&M. But I've also twice been a legislative intern for Texas Right to Life. So that was last winter break from 2016 to 2017 for those four weeks. Then I came back to school for another semester and then went back as a legislative intern over the summer. And I had the very fortunate and exhilarating opportunity to work in Austin during the special legislative session for four and a half weeks. Time went really fast. It was a lot of work, but we were able to pass four pro-life bills and it was a very fortunate learning opportunity for me. And... I was happy I was able to do that, and now I hope I have more expanded pro-life knowledge I didn't have before. The abortion debate typically varies uh, in different countries because it's not necessarily homogenous across the board. You have different countries, have different laws, different histories, different cultures. I think most relevant for us, though, would be the history of the abortion debate in the United States. So if you could just, could you sketch out briefly where we are today, but more importantly, how we got here? a sort of America-centric way of thinking, but <laughs> yeah. countries do follow our lead, so it's really important not just nationally to understand where this is coming from, but also from a global perspective, because America does lead on a lot of issues, whether we want to or not. And so I guess sort of common knowledge is Roe versus Wade did mandate the legality of abortion nationwide, but more uncommon, uncommon knowledge is that it was somewhat prevalent before. There were states that had legal abortion. It was truly a state's rights issue up until Roe versus Wade. And I think there's a lot of misconceptions surrounding that decision. Firstly, that this decision is often framed as a woman's rights victory, that this empowered women to make their own decisions. But the case was largely decided on the rights of a physician to perform an abortion, not for a woman to get an abortion. That's uncommon, but it's true if you were to read the decision, they were primarily focused on the rights of the abortionist to perform abortions. And secondly, with its companion case, Doe versus Bolton, which defined health as basically anything that can possibly be related to health. So that's physical health, that's mental health, that's even familial health whatever that is, and it's the abortionist that can define that. And any sort of restriction that you passed had to have a health exception. And so because of that, abortion was mandated all the way up until pregnancy. Any sort of law that you passed, it couldn't stand unless it had that health exception. So it was rendered useless after um, that exception was pretty much added. So it, was, it wasn't necessarily adding rights to women, though. So it was saying that abortion physicians, they had additional legal protections. Is that accurate? That That's not just the additional part. That is basically what the decision surrounded. Okay. But that did change. So 19 years later, and my math is correct, in 1992, the next sort of a landmark decision was Planned Parenthood versus Casey. And this really served as an affirmation and a restructuring of Roe versus Wade. It was said to upheld the essential holding of Roe. But it did change a few things. And one of those, it became more focused on the woman, more woman-centric. 
that it's the right of a woman to get an abortion, not of a doctor to perform an abortion. That was the main change. And another change that was made was at first in Roe versus Wade, any law had to go undergo a strict scrutiny analysis. And that meant that if this in any way violated Roe versus Wade or when it gets the grain of the decision, it was going to be struck down. But that changed in Planned Parenthood versus Casey and was transformed into what we call the undue burden test. And that means you can, even before viability, pass a restriction or regulation on abortion that does not cause an undue burden upon the woman. Now, how is that defined? It was largely defined upon the sort of laws that were being argued in front of the court. Pennsylvania was the one who went to court. It was their pro-life laws that they passed. And some of the uh, laws that were upheld were informed consent for women um, with waiting periods. Spousal notification was not upheld. That was said to go against the undue burden. Parental consent was said to be um, to not cause undue burden. And also reporting requirements after an abortion were said not to cause an undue burden. All four of these laws would have been struck down with just the Roe versus Wade ruling, but now with Planned Parenthood versus Casey, only one of them was. And so now for the first time with Planned Parenthood versus Casey, we have the ability to enact pro-life um, legislation. So in a way, it's bad because it created this idea of super precedent that, oh, abortion's totally ingrained in our society. It's got to be legal at some point. So culturally, this is a really bad thing, but at least legally, it did allow for us to enact pro-life legislation for the first time. And now fast forward to 2007, a Supreme Court case called Carhartt v. Gonzalez concerned itself with the partial birth abortion ban passed by the United States Congress in 2003. A partial birth abortion, and here's sort of a warning that this is pretty gruesome. The name is apt. It is partial birth. The baby is born halfway, and the doctor sticks scissors in the back of the neck of the preborn baby, or halfway born baby at this, and then crushes its skull, sucks it out, and then takes the baby's dead body out at that point. That is what a partial birth abortion is. And that was what the ban concerned itself with. And this went to the court, and in 2007, this was this ban was upheld by a vote of five to four, saying that this partial birth abortion ban was legal and did not cause an undue burden. And for the first time, really, the legitimate interest that was sort of laid out in Roe versus Wade and then brought up again in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, the legitimate interest of the unborn child was added to the calculus in making abortion decisions for the first time. And so that is sort of where the pro-life movement is now focusing on. And this was sort of confirmed in Whole Woman's Health versus Hellerstedt, this big abortion case that was just decided last year in 2016, and that restrictions that um, were concerned about the mother's health, they don't. it does not matter to the Supreme Court. Those decisions did, or that law, HB2, half of it, did cause an undue burden on the woman. And so right now, the sort of precedent that we're dealing with is that if we're trying to make regulations and restrictions that concern ourselves with the legitimate interest of the pre-born child, that's where we're trying to make hayway because the Supreme Court says, no, if you're trying to help a woman's health, that's not good enough for us. That's sort of where we're going with the pro-life movement. The dismemberment abortion ban here passed in Texas is now being challenged on a constitutional basis. We will see what that goes. That's furthering the partial birth abortion ban argument that they said that this is an inhumane decision or inhumane abortion procedure 
in that this matters, that the unborn child matters, and we're trying to challenge that and say, okay, here's another inhumane decision or procedure. Does this matter too? And unsurprisingly, throughout this entire process, you can see public support completely mirroring um, the legal um, battle as abortion was not so prevalent, it was not highly supported until Roe versus Wade. Now that something's legal, now apparently it's acceptable and we know philosophically, ethically, that's not really how it works. That's a that's a really good overview and you know, a lot of information there. I think that the extreme focus on Roe versus Wade has in, in many ways kind of truncated the, the pro life debate. In fact, there are many pro-life advocates out there that may be acting on either misinformed or not totally informed bases. I, there's a lot of preconceived notions surrounding that decision. Mm-hmm. If you look at public data and, and polls, they'll show that the country is relatively 50-50 split on the pro-life, pro-choice sort of view. In fact, a lot of those polls show that more Americans consider themselves pro-life than they do pro-choice. But when asked about Roe versus Wade, the majority will say, yes, I want Roe versus Wade to stand. But that's because these polls always say that Roe versus Wade only allows legal abortion in the first trimester, which is fundamentally and profoundly not true. Um, and even with that, the legal decision that we largely operate on is Planned Parenthood versus Casey, not Roe okay. versus Wade. So I think it's helpful to be aware of the, the relevant legal landscape so that we make you know relevant pointed arguments. And I'm sure that as the legal landscape has changed, the philosophical debate has also evolved. What would you say is currently the core argument, more or less on the cutting edge of pro-life apologetics? I do think a lot of the arguments you hear that are pretty prevalent are sort of, well, the Bible says that abortion's wrong or that you shouldn't be able to do whatever you want. These are just sort of fundamental tier one arguments against abortion. But of course, philosophically, ethically, these are arguments have extended to more complex um, discussions. I think one of the main ones, and the first one I heard about, was called SLED. And this was developed by Scott Klusendorf. And this basically says that the differences between an unborn child and an adult or infant or whoever, the differences boil down to four key differences. It's size, level of development, environment and degree of dependency does being bigger give you more rights no does your um level of development so is being an adult mean you have more of a right to life than being an infant does of course not your environment does being where you are give you more right to life when i turn over in bed do i have more or less right to life when i walk across campus versus being in my dorm room do i have more or greater or lesser right to life of course not and then degree of dependency. So toddlers depend a lot more on their parents than teenagers. When you become a teenager, do you suddenly have more of a right to life? No. So size, level of development, environment, degree of dependency, SLED. Those four are the only differences or any difference you come up with will fit to one of those four categories. And these four categories do not give you more of a right to life. So as you get older, whatever it may be, you do not gain a right to life. And that was sort of the the main philosophical argument for the human rights of the unborn. This has sort of changed a little bit because a lot of people say, well, you must meet a certain threshold. It's not necessarily that it's a spectrum or a gradient over time. You reach a certain threshold, then you gain rights to life. And they may set that at some point 
at birth, some point before birth, at some sort of important functionality of an organ, whatever it may be. And sort of the way to confront this is called the equal rights argument. It's what I was taught in pro-life Aggies. It's what is largely argued today from a pro-life um, philosophical standpoint with pro-life apologetics. And so this says that if you take an animal, an infant, and an adult, when we write a law saying you have a right to life, that law would govern the adult and infant at a greater rate and an equal rate than the animal. Now, even a vegan, someone who loves animals, would argue that that's probably correct. That yes, the human beings in the form of an infant and adult have a greater right to life than even the animal. Some people, very few, but some may disagree with that, but that's a largely accepted view. And so you must look at what distinguishes the infant and the adult from the animal. And you can run down any sort of distinguish, distinguishing characteristic, and the only one that works is being a human being. It's not, it's not being born because an animal can be born. It's not a heartbeat because an animal has a heartbeat. It's not, for example, you must have a certain brain capacity because then you may include you may exclude infants or include animals mm -hmm. and of course you don't want to do that either the only characteristic you can come up with is being a human being and naturally we know scientifically that from fertilization the unborn child is a human being and so you must extend that further from infants and adults and extend that to unborn children, to a fetus, an embryo, whoever, if you want to be philosophically consistent in that regard. Uh, that sounds very promising, but I can see where that can easily start to go down the rabbit hole of nuances and details and philosophical back and forth. Yeah, it does definitely get a whole lot more detail and nuance than that, and discussions are not always as easy as they seem. Um, the people on the other side, uh, the pro-choice apologists, they definitely have their own arguments. Um, I've heard many of them. Yeah, and some of them are, are pretty solid. Let's just discuss probably the most famous one, uh, Thompson's violinist. So Thompson argues by analogy, and she sketches out this hypothetical situation. You wake up in bed and you find that you have been connected biologically with an unconscious violinist, a famous unconscious violinist. In fact, he's been found to have a fatal kidney ailment. And the Society of Music Lovers, they canvassed all available medical records and they found that only you have the right blood type to help. And so because of that, they connected you. And last, um, so last night, the violinist circulatory system was plugged into yours and now your kidneys can be used to extract the poisons from your blood as well as, as, well as his own blood. The catch is he needs to be hooked up to you for at least nine months. And if you disconnect, he will die. There's a 100% certainty that he will die. And so Thompson says, this is an analogous case here. If we're gonna say that the fetus or embryo that is inside of a mother's womb, it is biologically dependent on the mother. And if, we're, and if the pro-life apologist is gonna argue that the mother must sustain this embryo or fetus because it is a human being with rights, then Thompson says, you should say that the violinist is every bit as human as the embryo is, and so you would be morally obligated to use your body to save uh, the violinist. For those familiar with pro-life apologetics, this is a pretty infamous argument. Widely considered to be the top, but I think there's several problems with it. I think first, most of the time, there's very rare instances, and I'm 
talking about rape and of course that is a very tragic situation and we i believe that perpetrators should be held to the fullest extent of the law of course and that's absolutely horrific and my heart goes out to anyone who's ever suffered through this but in all other instances the woman does something to get herself pregnant it's called sex it's a thing and it's also it's a procreative act it's not just something that's done for fun it's a procreative act every single time someone has sex there is a chance a baby will be made no matter how much protection you may use and so this would be more similar to if you went up to a machine and every time you pressed a button you got a thousand dollars but every once in a while you had a baby come out would you be morally obligated then to take care of the baby well, of course, because that's a risk of what you're doing, no matter how much protection you may use. It's a risk. So in that way, the violence argument falls short because it's saying that you just fell into this random situation out of no fault of your own, which most of the time, minus that tragic situation of rape, most of the time that's just not true. Secondly, a woman and a man has a fundamentally different relationship with a child than they do with a stranger. Parents are obligated to take care of their kids, no matter if they don't want to. They cannot let their kids starve. They can't provide, just choose not to provide shelter. They have to take care of their kid, and there is a reason for that. But they don't have to take care of the stranger across the street. They don't have to give money to a homeless man who's asking for it, but they do have to feed their kid. There's a fundamentally different relationship. So now instead of a stranger being plugged in, it's your five-year-old child that has to be plugged into you. As you can see, the analogy is starting to change a little bit, and it's not quite as like blatantly obvious. Mm-hmm. And then I think the last sort of caveat, and there's, there's another argument against it, would be, though, that abortion is actively killing someone. It is a violent destruction of a person. It's not, it's not just letting someone die. It's not letting the violinist die from their injuries or their kidney ailments or whatever. It's actively killing them. That's what abortion is every single time. It's not letting the embryo or fetus die. It is, it's active destruction. You have to actively murder your own child, not some stranger, but your own child. Mm-hmm. And that's where the violinist argument falls short. Yeah, I, I really think that, that that last part is the most uh, potent, at least for me. Usually whenever I think about ethical situations, whether you should or shouldn't do something, it's, it's often helpful to think, what happens if I do nothing? And that can kind of help parse out you know, where you're actively doing something where you're not, where you're just passively letting things happen. Because even, and I think this is reflected legally, there's a difference between homicide and you know, malignant neglect, I think is the, the term for it. You know, those are, those are different terms. And it seems to me that in the case of the violinist, if no action is taken, nobody hooks anybody up to kidneys or anything, he'll just die. But in the case of a pregnant woman, if no action is taken, the natural course is actually for that baby to continue to develop. Yes. And yeah, so it, it seems to me that 
that that's a very helpful way to point out where intervention is occurring and where you know passive action or lack of action is is, is taking place. In, in a lot of ways, with pregnancy, just continuing on with your own life by eating, by sleeping, by drinking, by every action that you do, the pregnancy will continue. In order for that child, that preborn child, to end up dying, you have to take some external force, mm-hmm. and, and that is completely different than what the violinist argument lays out. So you mentioned that the violinist argument, it may possibly be analogous to uh, non-voluntary intercourse because you were not voluntarily hooked up to the violinist. Uh, But Thompson also developed an additional analogy uh, to challenge the view of voluntary intercourse. And the the example that she gives, I love the name for it, it's called people seeds. Um, And the analogy she provides is, Suppose it's like this. There are people seeds that drift about in the air, kind of like pollen. And if you open your windows, one may drift in and take root in your carpets or upholstery. Um, And you don't want children, so you fix up your windows with these fine mesh screens, the absolute very best that you can buy. But as can happen, however, on very, very rare occasions, one of the screens is defective and a seed drifts in and and takes root. Thompson's argument here is that Sometimes, even despite your best efforts, these people seem to drift in, and whenever they land in, in your house, it seems intuitively that you still have the right to take that people seed out of your house and throw it out the door. Um, and likewise, a, even if a woman desires um, to engage voluntarily in intercourse, and even if she does take all of the best contraceptive methods, sometimes they don't succeed. But that doesn't, in, in Jarvis's mind, that doesn't seem to, sorry, Jarvis Thompson's mind, mm-hmm. that doesn't seem to somehow entail she has to take care of the child. So she is making the argument that you're using the best protective measures. However, obviously that's not the case if you're having sex. Just putting that out there. I think, again, this makes a, a ludicrous disconnect between sex and pregnancy. It's insane because we don't have random floating sperm around society. Almost every time a woman chooses to do a procreative act called sex, which can lead to pregnancy. And almost every single time it seems like this is long forgotten on her thinking and her analogies here. And this premise really is quite dehumanizing, to be honest. Calling people seeds... Like, you can't do that to anyone who's born because you'd be called a racist, a sexist, um, anti-Semitic, whoever you're referring to. You'd rightly be called out on your bigotry by doing so. But I guess it's okay to do this against people who are much smaller than us, people we don't actively see. But this really is a form of ageism in a way. And again, as I talked about before with the violinist argument... Abortion is actively killing someone. So that seed, when they grow up into a human being, because calling them a seed is just is ridiculous and it's hard to get off that point. But as they grow up, you have to actively kill them. Actively kill them. It's not just letting them die. Yeah. And so I think if we were to revise this again, you have to support the active killing of your tiny children, your own children, that kind of rarely go into those homes. You have to actively kill the seeds. And that's only only in the rape circumstances is this 
Is this hypothetical even somewhat valid? But you're still actively trying to kill or actively kill your kindred, which is a quite different scenario than the argument that she lays out. And these really, or she is supposedly one of the most intellectual and discerning of anti-life philosophers, but the best arguments she can come up with are completely farcical and sophomoric on the most basic level. Yeah, it does seem like those analogies, you know, the more you push it, it just really, it doesn't really hold up in in my mind either. Um, and, and I think that may be one of the difficulties of this debate is that it is so hard to argue about things that are so fundamental, like what is a human being or what is a right to life. And so all of us kind of, in some sense, have to resort to these analogies. Um, and by doing that, you know, it's so hard to make a good argument. We've made a lot of scientific advancements since Roe yeah. vs. Wade come out with the ultrasound, with just embryology in general. But on the pro-choice side, on the anti-life side, there is a lot of denying of the scientific advancements. And so they have to resort to these sort of just preposterous arguments that they constantly make. And it can be difficult to accept that you're on the losing end of the argument or accept that you're supporting this now gruesome procedure. But at some point, you one must realize that they're on the wrong side of the argument. Even if it has an extremely negative connotations that it has on this issue, people need to accept it rather than just sort of lowering yourself to making these arguments that still don't make any sense at all. Mm. Um, so in addition to the philosophical type of arguments, um, there are additional like sort of practical arguments saying that there are inconsistencies in your position. So I think probably one of the most popular ones is um, the fact that pro people that claim to be pro-life appear to be almost exclusively protecting children in the womb. Um, but after birth, it kind of seems like pro-lifers disappear. You don't see them, you know, funding orphanages or uh, funding adoption agencies. Or my most um, favorite one is whenever people pull this out in the American debate over universal health care. Anytime someone comes out against universal health care, sometimes people say, well, I thought you were pro-life. And yet now that they're out of the womb, well, it looks like you don't actually want to, to care for them. Um, so perhaps a better term would be rather than pro-life, you're really just pro-birth. And after that, you, you dip. Uh, this is the most common non-sequitur out there. As it doesn't even really attempt to answer the question surrounding elective abortion. It really only makes a far-fetched and partisan assumption that progressive policies are the best for the success of our society. I guess including young mothers and children. And we can have a debate about that. That's for a different day because this doesn't even attempt to get to the root of the issue. And it's fundamentally not true as well. Um, for example, right here on campus, Pro-Life Aggies, we sponsor a scholarship for um, young mothers and mothers of any age really that are students and, and pregnant um, students as well. It's called our Pregnant Parenting Student Scholarship. And we give these to mothers because we understand the importance of being pro-life from fertilization until natural death. That women who choose life, they need to be supported as well. And pro-life Aggies, for example, we fundamentally support women who make that decision. And we are going to be behind them every step of the way. And if you are a pregnant or parenting student, um, we ask you to reach out to us in whatever way because we do have a scholarship. The process can be quite competitive, but we'd like to see you apply. 
Um, hopefully we can help you out any way we can. We do offer babysitting services as well. We work with the Hope Pregnancy Center, Aggieland Pregnant, um, Pregnancy Outreach, the Elizabeth House Maternity Home, for example. We're helping women, whether they're um, still pregnant or their mothers. We're helping babies, whether they're preborn or they're infants mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. And even on the state level, they're funding alternatives to abortions or giving money to pregnancy centers and health centers that don't um, provide abortions because we understand that funding women's health is really important, but funding abortions isn't. Um, pro, pro-birth is just a non-sequitur that's used to distract and conceal or distract from the argument and conceal the heinous tactics that they're actually using. Mm-hmm. I think it may also be kind of an outworking of having such a broad coalition of people that are under the pro-life umbrella. So if you have a pro-life libertarian who thinks that the government shouldn't fund uh, universal health care for different economic <clears throat> reasons, it seems ridiculous to say, well, you're just pro-birth. Because he or she would be saying, well, no, I think the government should protect the unborn life, but I don't think the government's responsible for universal health care. And I think that if, if, if you realize that the pro-life movement wants to involve all of these disparate economic, political, religious, and philosophical views, you're going to have to unite around a pretty narrow core. It, it, it makes a dangerous assumption that the only way that we help children and young mothers is through universal health care yeah is through this progressive socialist like economic policies and that's a debate for a different day yeah and some people can think that way and others can think another way with more of the laissez-faire free market way of thinking about the economy and, and there's arguments to be made on both sides but that's not the issue here this is just distract from the issue surrounding elective abortion and the reason you may want to do that is because abortion is gruesome and draconian and thinking about it in any sort of way um, can scare people. Quite true. Uh, so I want to shift a little bit to more locally here uh, on the AM campus. Um, a couple of days ago, on August 30th, the Battalion uh, student newspaper released this article on a forthcoming publication by uh, actually a former ID, Dr. Hopefully I get this right, Annalisa Packham. Uh, she, I believe, was an economics. Uh, she got her doctorate in economics. And in this publication, Dr. Packham focuses on the Texas legislature's decision to cut $73 billion to uh, family planning services uh, back in 2011. And her central claim is that despite the intention of this law to reduce abortions, it turns out that the teen birth rate and subsequent abortion rate um, actually increased because of this defunding. If I understand her correctly, she was saying that because the services, that, like contraceptive services, were kind of cut out in addition to this cut from abortion funding, there were a lot of teens that became victims of unintended pregnancies. As a result, they had to resort to abortion. A lot of this comes from the fact that the contraceptive services that Planned Parenthood provides are inherently linked to the abortion services they provide because it is one organization. And she's right. In 2011, the Texas legislature did cut $38 million dollars or did reduce um, the funding for uh, abortion providers and their affiliates. And it did spark a temporary increase in teen pregnancy. For how long? For one year. And then after that, it went down at an even faster rate than it went up. And besides that, the overall pregnancy rate decreased over that same time from 2011 to 2014. 
But this is not even mentioned in the bad article, so it's it's really misleading because it's mischaracterized. And and besides that, there's always going to be noise. There's always going to be outliers. So looking at this one example doesn't really cover the full story. I understand where she's getting at. I don't think the publication that and that she that she did was necessarily misleading, but the way it was characterized in the bat was a little deceiving to the public. Uh, the article goes on and it says that since government funds are actually already legally prohibited from funding abortions, the cuts by the legislature to Planned Parenthood really only hurt the facilities that offer non-abortive services. Uh, and just to quote from the article itself, Despite its major role in providing family planning services to thousands of Texas clients, a, public, a publicized motivation for defunding uh, family planning services in Texas is the goal of eliminating Planned Parenthood. That's from Packham. And then the bat says, however, the clinics that provide abortion services cannot legally receive government funding, and shifting the funds between the clinics within the same organization is illegal. So Planned Parenthood operates separate family planning clinics that do not provide abortions and instead provide contraceptive services, STC, STD screenings, and other reproductive health services. So they conclude that these clinics, the non-abortive clinics, that rely on public funding to provide those services were therefore hit the, uh, the most hard by the 2011 cuts. Um, these facilities are known as affiliates of abortion providers. But this claim overall is fundamentally fictitious. Firstly, the Hyde Amendment only applies to federal dollars. It doesn't speak on what states or um, local municipalities can do with their own funding. For example, the city of Austin still gives money to Planned Parenthood, um, and if they wanted to, and if it did not contradict federal law or state law, they could fund abortions if they wanted to. Um, Oregon, for example, wants to fund everyone's abortions. They actually just passed a law saying they're going to do that. That's because the Hyde Amendment does not apply to them. And I think the second point is money is fungible. Complete monetary separation is impossible. Cecile Richards, for example, is a president of all of Planned Parenthood, the abortion providers and the affiliates of those abortion providers. For example, if they were to receive enough money to cover abortion, or not abortion, but um, affiliate services, just like this contraceptives or other women's health care, then they may now seek um, more donations for their abortion providers. They don't need to fund their affiliates anymore, these other healthcare clinics. So now they're only going to seek donations to cover abortions. And so that just shows how fungible money is. They don't need money there now because they had government help to get money there. So now they're going to focus on abortions. So yes, even though there is somewhat legal separation between the two um, parts of Planned Parenthood, it's not possible to completely separate them. He's not the only person that thinks that. However, it's just not true. So we've had a great conversation today. We talked a little bit about um, what pro-life Aggies is doing here on campus uh, to actively promote a culture of life here here in Aggieland. We also talked a little bit about how the legal landscape of the U.S. is much more complicated than Roe versus Wade. Yes. Um, and we also discussed a little bit about the cutting edge in pro-life argumentation. Just because arguments were good about 10 years ago, it's always good to you know keep revising and keep um, implementing them. And it looks like um, this article from the bat may be a little 
could be a little bit misleading or uh, it, it's not an outright lie it's not I doubt the author decided today he was going to try to convert everyone to be pro-choice mm-hmm. however I do think his um, preconceived notions and his opinions did get in the way of reporting and that's somewhat unfortunate so Jackson it's been great talking with you yes. Yes, I really enjoyed talking about this, and I think it's important to stay informed on these issues because it's really easy to get lost in the landscape. And Pro-Life Aggies is here on campus. We have started up. We have meetings every Monday at 7 o'clock, and Rudder 404 as of right now, that can change. But that's why you should like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter. Follow us on Instagram. We're there. We'll post, continuing to post updates. Um, I'm not an officer anymore, so I'm not in charge of that. However... I do not know who they are, so if you have any questions, feel free to reach out. Um, ProLifeAggies at gmail.com is our um, email account, and we hope we can see some of you all out there at some of our meetings or events. All right. Thank you, Jackson. We'll see you next time. Thank you.